This podcast is proudly supported by Drama Victoria. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record. We record on the land of the Wurundjeri Willem people. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we're speaking with Danny Horadsky, a PhD candidate from Monash University, about her recently published article, Education for Reconciliation, Understanding and Acknowledging the History of Teaching First Nations Content in Victoria, Australia. We talk a little bit about the history of teaching First Nations content and concepts and what reconciliation is and how we as teachers might help the nation take a step towards this goal. Links to the recently published article we discuss in this episode and a document we mention, Teaching First Nations Content and Concepts in the Drama Classroom, can be found in the episode description. We also have a number of episodes of The Aside that you can listen to on the topic of teaching First Nations content and concepts. Without any further ado, I bring you Danny Horadsky. Welcome to the podcast, Danny Horadsky. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us. So no we're talking a little bit about your article. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD topic and why you started doing this part of your project? For sure. And before I do, I, I, I know you've already acknowledged country as part of this uh, episode, but I'll just say that I am on the lands of the Woiwurrung Wurundjeri people and pay my respects to their elders past and present. And just, I feel very lucky to live on these lands and, and acknowledging that they are, that that culture is still continuing and that these are unceded lands is really important to me. Um, yeah, so my project is all about exploring how we can support teachers to engage with teaching for reconciliation, uh, which is something we're all required to do as teachers. And it's an area that many teachers feel discomfort around. They feel some fear or anxiety or even anger or resentment that they're required to teach this content. Um, and I set out to try and understand a bit more about why and then about what we can do about that, how we can move teachers through that discomfort to actually doing this work, which a lot of people think is pretty important. Your recent article focused on the role educators have in working towards reconciliation. Could you explain what reconciliation is? For sure. It's a bit of a controversial term, to be honest. Um, the idea of reconciliation, obviously, it's in English and it is a Western idea. And one of the problems we come up against in doing this work is that our language and our ideas are generally framed within Western culture. And that is a massive hurdle if what you're trying to do is actually celebrate and strengthen First Nations cultures. Um, so getting your head around that is kind of the first step. It's not a neutral term for First Nations people. It's not a benign term. So it, it, there are people that find it really inappropriate to use mainly because it implies there was an initial period of peace. So reconciliation is like there was this time when everyone was very happy and worked together and then there was an incident that made um, two groups draw apart and then reconciliation is about bringing those two groups back together again. And, of course, there never was an initial period of peace. Uh, invasion happened and 
peace was never an option, really. So a lot of people argue that conciliation or conciliation are better terms, um, that, we have, that we need to aim for that initial period of peace first and get really frustrated because it can become, particularly with our current politicians, it can become a very sentimental kind of symbolic term rather than creating any action. However, um, I use it because for a few reasons. One is because Reconciliation Australia frame reconciliation within five dimensions, which I think are really useful. Um, so that's historical acceptance, race relations, equality and equity, institutional integrity and unity. And they are about action. And also because reconciliation is built, is written into our curriculum and education policies. So if you are working at a school or an institution where perhaps there's some resistance against doing this work, you can fall back on, well, actually, it is written into our policies. This is something we have to teach. Reconciliation is a requirement for all teachers to promote and to celebrate and to work towards. And therefore, let me do what I want to do. <laughs> so, I mean, I wasn't aware at all of the history of that word. That's really interesting. Yeah, your research or the work you're doing looks into the past. And we're going to mm. ask some questions about the past in a moment. And I wonder if uh, in a few decades time, we look back on this period of reconciliation um, with the same lens and, and worry that by using that wrong term um, that we were causing more damage than good. But uh, you obviously feel that very differently about that. I think it's a distinct possibility. I think we might, just as we now use of the term First Nations rather than Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. It's not that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander are incorrect. It's just First Nations is a better word for many people. Um, and an even better word, even better words are using specific terms like Wurrung or Bunurong or Wiradjuri. Um, reconciliation is not the necessarily the best word to use. Um, and so has your hand been forced a little bit to use that word? Not forced, but because it's in the policy, it's the term people use. If you started using a different term, it would be more confusing than using the well-known term? Um, partly. I, I find it a useful term to use because it is that um, there's, a, there's, a way of, there's a way of looking at change when you're trying to change power. Um, that comes from critical race theory, which is in the news a lot at the moment. Um, but there's a way of trying to create change called interest convergence, which is the idea that the only way you're really going to get people in power to create change is if it's in their own interests. So having reconciliation written into the curriculum as a mandate means that it's in teachers' and schools' interests to teach it. So if you actually look at what reconciliation is, as framed by Reconciliation Australia, there's that push, there's that interest convergence of actually going, you know what, we have to teach about what racism is. We have to work towards challenging and overcoming racism. We have to work towards making sure our institutions have integrity. Um, so I find it a useful term. It's just not a simple term. All right. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to talk now a little bit about uh, four distinct periods that uh, that have occurred in the teaching of First Nations content uh, throughout Australia's history. And 
you talk about these in your article as well. And I thought it might give some great background and let people understand what the article is about and excite them to start reading your article uh, because there's some pretty fascinating stuff within that, maybe horrific stuff, maybe some surprising stuff, but at least in- interesting to the, to the historians and the teachers and those listening. Now, those th- four periods are 1836 to 1960s, 1965 to 1988, 1989 to 2007, and then 2008 until today. Uh, can you talk us a little bit about through those periods and how the teaching of First Nations content has changed? For sure. Um, they're, not, they're not eras that are set in stone, like there's no big flag waving when those times change. But I, again, they're, they're, they're useful concepts to trying to understand this. Um, that first one I call teaching terra nullius. So teaching about that Australia was empty before white people came here. Um, and there were definitely changes within that era as well. It uh, goes from teaching very much um, British colony, um, home is Britain, to trying to create an Australian identity and federation. Uh, you've got a couple of world wars in there, so a lot of change does happen. Um, but during this era, there were government-issued textbooks that were issued, um, and so all students were being taught by these textbooks and they create some really interesting and, as you say, kind of horrifying narratives around what it is to be Australian, what it is to be white, what it is to be First Nations. Um, and they, I, I argue, those ideas kind of still linger in our heads today. And one of the things that I think is challenging for people and was definitely challenging for me in learning about this is that they're they're quite appealing narratives. They're not stories that you read and as a at least I didn't when I was a kid because I, I had access to a lot of these books through my family. Um, I didn't read them and go, oh, this is horrific and racist. They're, they're, they're fun stories. They're stories about heroes and uh, pioneers and building a brave new nation. They're very, very appealing stories. And I think we we feel that when we read something that is essentially white supremacist literature, we should be instantly horrified and repulsed by it. And you're not necessarily. They're, 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 the strength of these ideas is lies in their appeal. Um, so a lot of people who've grown up on them don't want to let those stories go. They're, they're part of who some, some Australians feel feel. Uh, builds the core of their identity and that that's quite hard and quite emotional to to let go um, so that continues up until the 1960s and then we get a period of reform which kind of starts about 20 years earlier at the end of world war ii because um, world war ii was a really big eye-opening event for many people that actually it wasn't a useful thing to define people by their race and actually led to the murder of millions and millions of people. Um, But it took a good 20 years for that idea that we don't want to teach racial supremacy to filter down into schools. So these books were still being used for a good 20 years after World War II finished. And then you have up until the late 1980s, a a kind of period of reform. So people are, or different schools are using different textbooks. There's no government issued curriculum. 
Um, some schools do some really amazing work during this era. Some schools continue on with the old stuff. It, there's just not a very strong direction, um, which all changes in 1988, 1989, when suddenly the government starts taking a much stronger interest in what is being taught and we get a period of political agendas. So um, it becomes quite contentious what's being taught in schools and different people trying to achieve different things. Um, we see Keating as Prime Minister, we see Howard as Prime Minister, and they are very different, they were and are very different men with very different aims and ideas. And that's reflected in what is being taught about First Nations people in the curriculum during those eras. And if we get we get state and government, uh, no, not federal at this point, but state issued curriculums for the first time. Um, and then the period that I define as the one we're still in today starts in 2008 with the Melbourne Declaration, which really focused a large amount of attention on First Nations content, arguably for the first time. Um, and you get the Australian curriculum where we have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures as a cross-curriculum priority. And then we're still trying to work out what that should actually look like today. But that real idea of we need to teach reconciliation becomes very strong in our current era. Yeah, the, you, talking a little bit about reconciliation and how we're moving towards uh, this greater awareness of First Nations content and concepts as we move from 1836 up to this current period, um, what are the benefits that politicians, that, that the, the Australian people, that its citizens, what are the benefits to reconciliation for all Australians? And could you talk us through that? Yeah, I think it's an interesting phrase, and it is a phrase that's in the curriculum and in um, our big education policies that everyone should be contributing to and benefiting from reconciliation. And I think that's it's kind of an interesting way of putting it in its in its own right. Like, why why that that emphasis on benefit is quite interesting. But um, yeah, I think everyone does benefit from reconciliation, truth is really important. If we can ever have such a thing as truth, but we can definitely have a better version of truth than what we currently teach. It can be really painful and shameful maybe and saddening, but also really fascinating. Once you get through those emotions, it's, I think it's much more interesting to learn realities than lies and very freeing and healing, hopefully. Um, I think we need to have a society built on positive two-way relationships with trust and respect. Racism doesn't just hurt people of colour, although obviously it has more, like much more detrimental effects on their day-to-day -day lives. But when we view other people as less than human, then we reduce our own humanity. I think we... Oh, racism is a canker for all of us that we need to get rid of um, there's economic benefits having some uh, having a distinct proportion of the population living immeasurably inequitable lives is costly we actually save money by 
trying to prevent inequality rather than trying to repair the outcomes of inequality. Um, we live, <laughs> we're so lucky. We, we live alongside the oldest continuing cultures of the world. And at the moment, we're, we're, we're still destroying those cultures, which is horrifying. But to be part of strengthening and revitalizing those cultures is such an incredible gift, such an incredible opportunity to be part of. It being, if we could have actual reconciliation, it would increase opportunities for all people to learn and grow. And we might actually have a hope of national unity, which we just don't have at the moment. Absolutely. And uh, minimising that uh, the us and them idea of the Australian people that we're learning about other First Nations content and concepts, like it's something else we're learning about rather than part of us and part of our country and part of what something we can be proud of? Or am I missing the point? Yeah, yeah, I think um, it would, in an ideal future, hopefully we do learn about, yeah, a unified country, but there are costs to doing that there there is a loss of power that white people need to experience in order for that to happen it's not as simple as yay we're all unified now um, we actually need to do some very hard work to get there but i hope i hope we do i believe it is possible you offer um a call to action kind of at the end of the article can you talk us through one of the final lines of your article, which is, I suggest that only when First Nations peoples control what, how and why First Nations content is taught can Australian education contribute to the decolonising process and thus reconciliation. For sure. Um, how might teachers help this occur? Yeah, I think I'm not sure how many teachers realise, and this is just speaking from our own experience, I, th I think when the Australian curriculum came out and the cross-curriculum priority was in it, I rather naively assumed that it was written by First Nations people. And that's not the case. Um, it wasn't even written in consultation with First Nations people. Um, it's, there's a lot of problems in how that content is currently written. It's, it's tacked on, it's called a cross-curriculum priority, but it's, it's not, it's a half forgotten afterthought at the moment. So having First Nations people control that content is really, really important. Um, and that's currently trying, trying to have happen in the changes in the Australian curriculum. So the changes that are being proposed have been developed by the Aboriginal Educationist Advisory Group, I think is their name. Um, which is actual First Nations people. And it's really, I think it's really fantastic content, um, but it has raised some, ruffled some feathers, raised some hackles amongst our more conservative politicians. Um, so that's one thing we can do as teachers. We can support those changes and that's really, really important. And we can look into what those changes are. And if we are made uncomfortable by them, we can try and educate ourselves to understand why and how we can get over that discomfort. We need to listen. First Nations people have been talking about this for a very long time, about how they want First Nations content taught. Um, this, is not, this is not something that is just on the horizon from the last 10 years. It's, um, there's a great quote from Jack Patton, who's a Yorta Yorta man, and Bill Ferguson, 
who was a Wiradjuri man from 1938, from that first day of mourning, where they ask for equal education. They want equality in education. They want equality in wages and the right to possess property. Um, they want equal citizenship. And that's nearly 100 years ago, and we're still not there, which I think is horrendous. <laughs> So we need to start listening and we need to start acting on what First Nations people are saying. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's something that drama teachers could be doing in their classrooms to be uh, working towards this goal? Yeah, I think it's something all teachers can be doing. Um, I think that, like, going back to what we were saying at the start, despite the problems with reconciliation as an idea, that framework that Reconciliation Australia put out is a really, really useful way to work so looking at any for any teacher looking at what you're doing and going okay where what's the history to what I'm teaching what race relations are inherently in what I'm doing because race relations are in just about everything we we teach they're just not necessarily very obvious um how how am I ensuring that this is equal and, and equitable so for, for example the plays that we teach in theatre studies and drama, who's writing them, whose voices are being heard. Um, when you're devising works with students, what topics are you giving them? How could you embed First Nations concepts into what you're teaching? And of, of course, you could, you could always go and read teaching, for, um, teaching First Nations content and concepts in the drama classroom. That's, that's a great place to start and there'll be a link to that document in the description of this episode have no worry about that Danny Horetsky <laughs> it will be there for people who want to click on that as well as a link to your article uh, people yeah. can definitely read both of those things um, so congratulations to you on having your work published that's huge um, that can be a long process with lots of writing and editing in between how was the process for you as a PhD candidate yeah look it's it's a it's a journey <laughs> I use the phrase it's a journey a lot in this work that I'm doing it I feel very lucky to be doing this um it is as you say it's a really challenging process to get an article published it goes through an editorial review um where it can be rejected straight away or passed on to some peer the peer review process which is where a couple of other academics look at what you've written anonymously and give you feedback so they might say, nope, this isn't up to standard or yes, this is something we want to publish, but here are all these changes you need to make. Um, and then you have to make them and they go back and it can, yeah, it's usually a good year to a year and a half between submitting an article and actually having it published if, if you're lucky enough to have it accepted. So yeah, and then COVID happens on top of all of that. And this is only one small part of what I'm doing it's yeah there's a lot to go to a lot to go still but it's so the congratulations remains well done <laughs> thank yeah, you, you achieved, <laughs> thank you, you. It. it's very and exciting well to have it have it published yeah well done well thank you very much for your time today Danny Horetsky yeah thank you for having me Nick it's great
please note there is a paywall behind Annie Horazki's recent article, but she is more than happy to email you the article herself. I will not give out her email on this podcast, but she is quite easy to find online. She is a PhD candidate at the Faculty of Education at Monash. So if you check out the Monash portal, you shall be able to find Danny Horazki or Danielle Horazki, spelt in the episode description. That is all from us at The Aside. There are a load of episodes in the bank, over 350 episodes now, and we're super duper close to having 90,000 listens to the podcast. Thank you everyone who uh, emails us each week or listens to the podcast daily, weekly, monthly, or occasionally. Thank you for supporting the podcast, and hopefully it's been of benefit to you. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here, to Aaron Searle for providing the music, to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support, and of course, thank you for listening. Don't forget you can email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com with any questions. We answer a number of emails each week and are always happy to help. See you next time.